All right, good morning, everybody. You have your Bible with you this morning? If you do, you need to turn to Galatians chapter 3. If you don't, you need to grab a pew, uh, a Bible from the pew rack in front of you. <laughs> grab a pew and hold on, uh, maybe today. Uh, grab a Bible from the pew in front of you. Turn to Galatians chapter 3 so you can follow along as we study God's Word together. Last week in Galatians, we saw more about the law and the promise. Particularly, we saw what life was like before Christ came and what it is like now that he has come, that he has lived and died and rose again. And we saw what it looks like to be united with him last week. We saw this progression in the text that that before faith came, before Christ came, we were confined under the law, but then a great movement of faith came with Christ, men and women from all over the place coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being united with him. That was number three, being united with him by faith. And, And then... Being in Christ, united with Christ, under Christ, we're no longer under the law in the same way we were before as we were captives to it and and found under it and shut up under the law is what the text says. So the questions we asked last week for application were, number one, are you in Christ? Seems to be the defining difference uh, between two groups of people, always, throughout all the world, those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. The question is, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ by faith? And have you demonstrated that union with Christ that is invisible and internal by a visible and external symbol of baptism? Not that water baptism makes you to be in Christ, but it symbolizes that you are in Christ by faith. Second question was, how do you view the law? Do you still see the law as a jailer, as a taskmaster, as a tutor or custodian over you, holding the rod ready to beat you if you step out of line? Or do you see the law now as a child of God, as a son of God, by faith in Jesus, as a delight to your soul? A delight to your soul that he would guide you in the paths in which you should walk. The question is, how do we see the law? Well, this week we're going to go back a little bit. We're going we're to kind of back up in Galatians, and we're going to look specifically at Galatians 3.28, part of the text we studied last week. And we're going to try to see Galatians 3.28 and its application in our lives today in a few particular areas. And part of what we will see in the text today will be red meat for some of you. Some of you will just absolutely eat this up and you'll be quick to the amen and the that's right and all this stuff. And there will be other parts of it that you might find extremely offensive and confrontational. And the interesting thing about it is the one guy sitting next to you might see it one way and the next guy see it another way. Uh, and and that's, that's the way God's word works in our hearts. It exposes us. It lays us bare. It lays us open so that it can correct us in the areas where we need correction. And uh, my prayer is that that's what this text will do in your heart today as it has done in my heart already. So Galatians 3, I'm going to read from verse 23 through verse 29. But again, we're going to pay careful attention to verse 28. So this is what God's word says. But before faith came... We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs 
according to the promise. Let's pray together. Father, we, we know that your desire and design for us is unity in Christ, that we would be one, even as you and your Son are one. This is the way Jesus prayed for us, and we want to live out that unity that you provide for us by your grace through the gospel, that you empower by your spirit, but that is totally at odds with our flesh and our natural tendencies apart from Christ. We want to live supernaturally. In this church and in the world, to be united with one another, to see our primary identity as being in Christ and therefore be united closely with others who are in Christ. Pray that your word will do what it does, your spirit will do what he does in opening us up, laying us bare, exposing our weaknesses, our sin, and purging it. Pray that you will empower repentance where it's necessary today. All for your glory, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the way we're going to approach this text today and our study of this text today is first to notice a pattern that's there in verse 28, and then to talk generally about the point of, of the verse, and then to talk about what it doesn't mean, how it shouldn't be applied, and then finally to talk about what it does mean, how it should be applied, because there's some real dangers in misapplying this text, some real dangers that are on display all around us today of how not to apply this text, how not to understand it, so we want to guard ourselves against that. So first, let's talk about the pattern. Notice in verse 28, he lays out these um, uh, categories of people uh, that are often divided from one another. He says, Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. In doing this, in referencing these juxtapositions, Paul is talking about the greatest divides in Galatia in his day. It is the quintessential, there are only two kinds of people in this world statement. There are Jews and there are Greeks. There are slaves and there are free men. There are men and there are women. And when we read this so that we can apply it to today, we need to recognize there are categories. And we want to identify those categories to help us apply the truth to our lives today. So when he talks about Jews and Greeks, we need to see him referring to race or culture or ethnicity, right? That's going to be one category that we're going to talk about all throughout the day is race or culture or ethnicity, right? When he talks about slave or free man, we could say that he's there referring to rank or class or socioeconomic status, all right? That's category number two in which he's going to apply our union with Christ into rank or class or socioeconomic status, and when he talks about male or female, that's the easier one to identify. There we're talking about gender or sex. And so how does our union with Christ, our new identity in Christ, play out in these areas where there seem to be such social, cultural differences? Here's the point. That's the pattern. Here's the point. The point is clearly stated at the end of verse 28. When he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. 
And that main point is linked back to verse 27 when he says, if you are baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourself with Christ. Therefore, if you are in Christ, you are one with one another. Tim Keller says it like this. Tim Keller identifies the point like this. He says, the gospel has radical social implications. It means that I am a Christian before I am anyone or anything else. That's a pretty good statement of the point of this text, that I am a Christian before I am anyone or anything else. John MacArthur says it a little bit differently. He says, the person who becomes one with Christ also becomes one with every other believer. In other words, when I am in Christ, I have a new identity. And that new identity of being in Christ is the primary identity in my life. Therefore, I have more in common with others who are in Christ, though they be of a different race, a different rank, or a different gender, than I do with those who are not in Christ, but share those three identifications with me. Does that make sense? That if you're of a different race, a different gender, a different socioeconomic status than I am, but we are in Christ together, we have more in common than folks who look like me, live like me, talk like me, and use the bathroom like me. My primary identity is in Christ. And that doesn't do away with those other identities, but it eclipses those other identities. And we need to settle that now. This is teaching us that when we are in Christ, we are one with one another. The gospel doesn't just reconcile us to God. It reconciles us with one another as well. And tears down barriers that would normally keep us apart. Normally, in our culture, would keep us apart. The gospel breaks them down. And they need to be broken down. And you may be sitting there and you're thinking, oh, I don't have any of those. I don't have any of those barriers that keep me apart from other people. Fooey. You do too. And they need to be torn down by the grace of God. So we must learn to identify, prioritize our new identity in Christ. And in so doing, we will find unity with others who are in Christ. Now let's talk about what this text does not mean. This text does not mean that the differences in these three categories of race, rank, or gender, culture, class, or sex, it does not mean that those, those differences cease to exist altogether. This text is not teaching us that, that there suddenly becomes one ethnicity or one gender or one socioeconomic status. Rather, those things, those differences remain in effect but are not primary. For example, when we talk about race or culture or ethnicity, we must recognize that the gospel doesn't wipe away our ethnic identity. Rather, it overrules our ethnic identity, but it doesn't do away with it. We see this in the ministry of Paul. The Apostle Paul, as he travels around the known world and engages various ethnic peoples, various cultures, various uh, nations and tribes and tongues, he knows how to talk to each one of them. And he preaches the one true gospel message in different ways to different people so that they can hear the one true gospel message. So Paul doesn't say all men are the same. There's just one ethnicity. There's just one nation. There's one tribe, one tongue. He says, no, there are lots of different tribes and tongues. I want to preach the gospel to each one of them. He says at one point, I've become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. We also see this at Pentecost when the church is born, essentially. 
These Galilean hillbillies who are uneducated suddenly are speaking languages that they have never learned. And the people who have gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, by the way, this is like Pentecost Sunday, interestingly enough, if you look at the calendar. All these people who have gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost from all kinds of different nationalities, all kinds of different ethnicities, all kinds of different races and languages, they suddenly hear the one true gospel message in their specific language. God is reaching out across these ethnic divides. And we see this maybe most profoundly in Revelation chapter 5, that God in the gospel doesn't wipe away our ethnic identity, rather he overrules it. He doesn't do away with it. Read in Revelation 5 with me. This is gold, and we sang about this just a minute ago. It says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came. And took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, listen to this, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This is is God not wiping away our ethnic identity, but overruling, overwhelming, eclipsing our racial ethnic identity and making us into a multicolored choir that will sing worthy is the lamb who was slain for all eternity. This is good news. This text is not teaching that God wipes away those ethnic identities, but rather he overwhelms them. What a beautiful picture Revelation chapter 5 is of unity in diversity. What a beautiful picture it is of harmony as people from different backgrounds sing the one song of praise to the Lamb. Let's talk about it in the area of rank or race. This text is not teaching that there are not or will not be people of varying levels of vulnerability within the church. Paul gives instructions to people from all kinds of different statuses in his writings. He talks to slaves and masters. He talks to parents and children. He talks to old women and young women, old men and young women, single people and married couples. God's word speaks of widows and orphans, people from all kinds of backgrounds. It doesn't wipe away those statuses. It doesn't wipe away those ranks. It doesn't wipe away those socioeconomic positions. We see consistently throughout the Bible the obligation of those with means to provide for and care for those who cannot sustain themselves. There will always be those differences. There will always be people at varying levels of vulnerability in the church and in the world. And those differences in vulnerability do not divide us. They must not divide us. In the area of gender or sex, 
This text does not undo what the rest of the Bible says about the distinctions between men and women. God has ordained certain structures for the home and for the church that are good for us. But they are distinctions in role and not in value. In other words, Ephesians 5 is not undone by Galatians 3.28. Ephesians 5, when it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Galatians 3.28 doesn't undo those different roles. Galatians 3.28 is also not an argument for homosexuality. That in Christ there's neither male nor female, so it matters not who you have affection for or who you sleep with. That's absurd. No one's doing that with Galatians 3.28 yet. But it's just down the road because many people are using Galatians 3.28 to undo a lot of other things that the Bible says. And that should trouble us greatly. We... We must read Scripture in its context, and we must interpret Scripture by Scripture. And we must not use this text as an argument for women to be pastors. It's an abuse of this text. And yet it is is the text that folks go to, to try to trump and overrule other clear texts in Scripture. It's not what he's talking about here. R.C. Sproul says it like this. It's a long quote, but it's good. R.C. Sproul says, Galatians 3.28 is twisted in liberal circles to mean that there must be no role distinctions at all in the church. Such an interpretation is foreign to the context, for as John MacArthur writes, Paul only means that racial, socioeconomic, and gender differences do not imply spiritual inequality before God. The cross relativizes these distinctions. We are Christians, heirs of God's promise to Abraham, long before we are Americans, Asians, rich, poor, men, women, or anything else. And we need to get that last part. We are Christians long before we are Americans. We are Christians long before we are white. John Stott says it well. He says, when we say that Christ has abolished these distinctions, we mean not that they do not exist, but that they do not matter. That's gold. We mean not that they do not exist, but that they do not matter. They are still there, but they no longer create any barriers to fellowship. We recognize each other as equals, brothers and sisters in Christ. Whether we have these differences or not, we recognize one another as equals. Brothers and sisters in Christ, by the grace of God, we would resist the temptation to despise one another or patronize one another. For we know ourselves to be all one person in Christ Jesus, which is a different translation of Galatians 3.28. So this text is not teaching us that those distinctions are wiped away. They're done away with. It's simply teaching that they don't matter primarily anymore. That our identity in Christ is what matters primarily. And therefore, these dividing walls, these differences that are raised up like dividing walls are torn down. So what does the text mean? If that's not what it means, what does it mean? We are seeing that these differences don't matter in an ultimate sense, in a salvific sense, or in a community sense. In other words, the gospel and our identity in Christ by faith eclipses these differences to the extent that they no longer keep us apart. Our new identity in Christ eclipses these differences so that they no longer keep us apart. They're not gone, but they don't separate us anymore. 
So what does that mean in the area of race or culture or ethnicity? It means that there is absolutely no place for racism. No place for bigotry or prejudice in the church or in the life of a Christian. That's what this text means. This text means that you don't get to look at someone who has a different skin color than you as less than you. It doesn't belong in the church. It is unbecoming. It is anti-gospel. It is anti-Christ. And there's no place for it in our lives or in the church. I want to commend to you a sermon that David Platt preached on the issue of racism at Together for the Gospel a couple of months ago. I'll post a link to it later today on social media. It was stirring. It was convicting. And as much or perhaps more than I appreciated the content of his sermon, I appreciated the tone in which he delivered the sermon. A tone of brokenness and contrition and conviction of sin. He said at one point this, it would be on the board. He said, instead of closing or bridging the racial divide, churches and pastors have historically and are currently broadening the divide powerful statement and when he delivered that statement there was a guy that I don't know I don't know who it was it wasn't someone that came with us praise the Lord but there was a guy sitting behind us that said that's not right let me tell you something if you hear that statement and that's your initial reaction you probably have a problem you have probably have a problem with racism because if you read the history of the church he's right about this if you examine the current situation in the church as a whole, he's right about this. Rather than dismiss this statement as hyperbole or inaccuracy, we should let this statement penetrate our hearts and shine light into the darkness in order to expose our own racist tendencies. Because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. We are all one in Christ. So Platt outlined six steps, six exhortations that can help us fight against this racial divide. First, he says, look at the reality of racism. We need to take an honest look at our own lives. We need to take an honest look at our own church. And he says, I'm not just talking about extreme examples that often help us distance ourselves from the problem. Like extreme examples like people in in silly white hoods marching down a street. Those are extreme examples, and we can easily say, oh, I'm not involved in anything like that. And we can distance ourselves from the problem when we may share the very same root of problem that those guys have. So let's look at the reality of racism. Let's live in a true multi-ethnic community. He said at one point that conviction over this came when he looked around his world, and he said, it's so white. It's so white. My world is so white. And I have tried in the past to to, uh, get myself off the hook in that by saying, my town is so white. Just true. When you look at the ethnic diversity of Harrisburg and Saline County, it's not real diverse. My world is overwhelmingly white. And it should not be. So let's live, number two, live in true multi-ethnic community. Number three, let's listen to and learn from one another. So when we hear of brothers and sisters of different ethnicities or different races struggling with an issue, 
Our first role, our first move should not be to dismiss the issue, but to listen to their pain in the midst of it. To hear the articulation of suffering and oppression that's coming out rather than say, oh, here are the facts. I heard Matt Chandler say some amazing things about when we hear stuff like this, we just want to confront it with facts rather than sit in the ashes with our brothers and sisters and mourn over their pain and their loss. Let's listen to one another rather than argue with one another, which is what we tend to do. Fourth, he says, let's love and lay aside our preferences for one another. Let's let Jesus be the only reason we're together. Number four, number five, I mean, he says leverage. Let's leverage our influence for justice in the present day. And he was preaching from Amos chapter 5. And in Amos chapter 5, there's a statement that, that says, let justice flow like a river. And at this point in the sermon, he says, that's what we want is we want a river of justice. We want a river of reconciliation. We want a river of peace, not a trickle. And let's leverage our influence toward that end. And then finally, he said, let's long for the day when justice will be perfect. That day of the Lord is still to come. He's made a way for us to be safe in Christ, and he's brought us together in Christ. So this text is teaching us that there is absolutely no place for racism or bigotry or prejudice in the church or in the life of a Christian because there is neither Jew nor Greek. We are all one in Christ. When it comes to rank or class, the second category we've talked about, this means that we come together across socioeconomic barriers. It means that even as the rich supply the needs of the poor, there is love and respect. It's not a provider and recipient relationship, but a brother and sister relationship. One of unity and harmony in the gospel rather than superiority and inferiority in the world's view of things. The point here and really in this whole text is that there will be differences. There will be differences in rank and class and socioeconomic status. But even with those differences, we can have true unity and spiritual equality that will be compelling to the world. When the world sees people from different socioeconomic statuses, different classes or different ranks coming together because of the gospel, they will say, that's weird. How do those people get along? And our answer is, because of Jesus, we get along. Because of Jesus, we love one another. Because of Jesus, we respect one another. Because of Jesus, we value one another. When it comes to gender and sex... This text teaches us that men respect women. You treat them as sisters, loving them, caring for them, protecting them when they need to be protected. It means that you don't boss them, you don't intimidate them, and you don't control them. There is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ. And so, fellas, I'm going to apply this mostly to you. You respect these sisters of yours. And you don't dare mistreat them. Paige Patterson, who is president of Southwestern Theological Seminary, one of our Southern Baptist schools, has been in the news recently for some advice that he gave to a woman who was being physically abused by her husband. Came to him for some pastoral counsel, and his pastoral counsel was essentially stay and pray. And he said, and when you do that, you should expect that the abuse will escalate as you pray for your husband. Well, the story goes that she took his advice, 
knelt down beside their bed nightly and came back to Paige Patterson a week later with a black eye. Said to him, essentially, I hope you're happy. And his reply was, I am. Because you don't know that your husband was in the earlier service this morning and he gave his life to Jesus. Now listen to me. I want to rejoice over the salvation of this brother. And I want to join Paige Patterson in his commitment to marriage, not to counsel people toward divorce. But the message that that sends to our sisters in Christ is not a good message. Stay and pray. Continue to get beat up. I love you more than that. So as your pastor, I want to say, if you, ladies, are in a physically abusive situation, get away. Call the police. Call the church. And if we're going to pray for anything, let's pray that First Baptist Church will become the kind of church that has some stout elders who will hear, as Spurgeon says, stout elders who will hear of this kind of abuse and address the abuser. Not just to sit back and say, let it happen and hopefully he'll come to Jesus. I am not saying we counsel people toward divorce. I'm saying we, we address the abuser. And we don't encourage our women to continue to be abused. Brothers, we must love these women and respect them and care for them. And, and again, as much as I rejoice over this guy's salvation and as much as I appreciate Paige Patterson's commitment to marriage and join him in that, there is a middle ground there where we cannot subject our women to further abuse and not counsel for divorce. And that won't be an easy road to walk. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that First Baptist hasn't always been a church that does that. I'm sorry that we haven't always defended and protected our sisters like we should have. On another note, maybe you read a letter by Beth Moore. Posted it on social media earlier this week where she talks about the way she is treated as she travels the world to preach God's word. She describes in that letter being objectified by other speakers at conferences. She describes being belittled, treated as a second-class citizen, all in the name of orthodoxy. That's a problem, guys. That our women would be made to feel like second-class citizens. This text is teaching us that there's no second-class citizen in God's kingdom. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Jews would see Greeks as second-class citizens. Greeks would see Jews as second-class citizens. He says there's, there's no Jew or Greek. We're all one in Christ. Slaves and free. Certainly free men would see slaves as second-class citizens or not citizens at all, property. But in Christ we are one. And in this day, in Galatia, women were by far second-class citizens. And this is a radically countercultural message that Paul is preaching to the church. There's neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. Genesis chapter 1 teaches us that God created all kinds of people in his image. All kinds of people, male and female, created them in his image. And Revelation 5 teaches us that God is redeeming all kinds of people by the blood of his son. We need to learn to see the world through this lens primarily. That all kinds of people are created in God's image. 
And all kinds of people will be redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should bring us together. So, four questions for application today. Number one, how do you define yourself? What is your primary identity? Not that you don't have secondary identities. Don't you, don't you don't have subsequent identities. But what is your primary identity? And I want to tell you today, if you are in Christ, and that's not your primary identity, you've got everything wrong. If you are in Christ, that is ultimately who you are. Second question is, how do you define others? How do you identify the people in your life? Is the primary marker in Christ or not in Christ? Primary marker created in the image of God? Or is it something else? Do you see first their skin color, their socioeconomic status, or their gender? Third question is how can we come together across such seeming divides? How could men and women come together for the kingdom of God? How could Jews and Greeks come together for the kingdom of God? How could slaves and free men come together for the kingdom of God? It is only by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're going to take the Lord's Supper here in a minute. And that's why you're going to share the Lord's Supper with one another rather than uh, the pastors serving you. You're going to serve one another because what binds us together in this room is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper is is a vivid, tangible symbol of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which is ultimately the unity that we have with each other. So I want you to think about that as you serve your neighbor. As you hand the plate of juice or cup to the one next to you, you say, this is what brings us together. Not the bread and the cup, but Christ brings us together. Even though we're different from one another. Let me encourage us all. Let's seek some relationships with people who are different than us. It's normal to want to see good things happen in people who are just like us. Like we see, I think we see that in Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 when he talks about his heart's desire for his kinsmen, his countrymen according to the flesh. Remember that? I think he wants to see good things happen to the Jews. But that doesn't keep him from reaching to the Gentiles. It doesn't keep him from risking his life to get the gospel to the Gentiles. It makes sense that we would want to see God move in people who are just like us. But that must not keep us from reaching to folks who are different from us. And we need to work on this, church. By God's grace, he'll transform our hearts and our lives. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we recognize that you created all kinds of people in your image. That every man, woman, boy, and girl on the planet bears your image equally. And we recognize that you are redeeming all kinds of people by the blood of your Son. our prayer today is that you would redeem some even in this room, in this moment. That you would show them their sin and show them your justice. Show them the cross as Christ died for them. Give them faith to believe, repentance to turn. And Father, save them. Rescue them by your grace and for your glory. For those of us who have been rescued already, I pray that you help us to see our primary identity in Christ. And that we would Come together in Christ. That these barriers that keep us apart would be eclipsed by the gospel and by your grace that is ours in Christ. That it would be said of First Baptist Church, there's neither Jew nor Greek, they're one in Christ. 
neither slave nor free. They are one in Christ. There's neither male nor female. They are one in Christ. And that this compelling unit, this unity in the midst of diversity would be compelling to the world. And it would give us opportunity to preach the good news that brings us together. That's our heart's desire. We believe that's your heart's desire. And so we pray that you'll bring it to pass for your glory in Christ's name.